and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we're continuing the conversation that we began last week, focused on common misconceptions around self-help, personal growth, therapy, and overall our attempt to better our own psychology throughout our lives. So to help me with this topic, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. And I love these topics. They're right at the heart of Mm. being engaged with your own mind in this life. So I think it's fantastic that we're addressing a variety of critiques that have come along the way, a variety of objections to doing what you can to look inside yourself and heal and grow and even awaken a little bit every day. So these are a variety of common misconceptions that are very present out there in the world related to these topics. And they're ideas that all can sound pretty convincing, and some of them might even have a kernel of truth at the core of them. And they're held by a lot of people. Um, But for one reason or another, they're incomplete or otherwise problematic or misguided. So before we get into today's misconceptions we explored, I want to say maybe five or six of them last week, I wanted to give you a couple of quick reminders. First, you can follow us on social media. I've linked all of our profiles in the description of today's episode. Then second, if you'd rather be watching this episode right now, you can watch it on my YouTube channel. I've included a link to that as well. And then finally, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. This includes things like transcripts, expanded show notes, and even ad-free versions of the episodes. I want to begin with one that is very central to your work as a whole dad, It'll kind of give you an opportunity to explore this whole territory. And each of these misconceptions is framed as a statement or a question. So here's our first one. People can't change very much in adulthood. And even if they do change due to hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill, people just kind of return to their happiness set point anyway. So it all doesn't really matter very much. What do you have to say about this? Ah. <laughs> That's why I'm it's a classic. Start. It's a classic. I know. Uh, are you kidding me? Okay. First, there's tremendous evidence, very solid, good research evidence that shows that on average, in general, people who engage some kind of sustained, reasonably skillful effort to become less depressed over time or become less anxious over time or to become less preoccupied with traumatic experiences that may they may have had, those people change for the better over time. Not everybody does. There's the broad rule of thirds in the field of medical treatment It could be applied to psychological treatment as well, that roughly a third of the people who engage the treatment get a lot out of it. About a middle third or so get something from it, and roughly a third don't get much of anything and even potentially maybe deteriorate during the course of the treatment for one reason or another. So in that context, 
all right off the top, there's tremendous evidence that addressing certain kinds of issues can lead to lasting gains, lasting changes for the better over time. Second point, the so-called hedonic treadmill idea. There's good evidence that shows that on average, negative events have much more of a lasting impact on us than positive events do. So first of all, we see the negativity bias in terms of the return to the prior baseline. It takes a lot longer to return to baseline after an intensely negative experience than it takes to return to baseline, in fact, after an intensely positive experience. Also, many, many people who gradually work on their own well-being over time gradually cultivate positive emotions and internalize them. This is a very important point. Um, they internalize them, they tend to show lasting gains over time. Even if there's a finding that says, on average, many people you know, get happier for a little while, but then the glow wears off, that's a statement about the average person. But what about those people in that upper third, roughly, let's say, who get a lot out of their beneficial experiences in lasting ways? Those are people who, by definition, are somehow turning those states into traits. They're having beneficial experiences that they are helping in some ways or they are occurring in some ways to really, really sink in. So the mm -hmm. takeaway point here, where the hedonic treadmill point is valid, is that it's not enough to have good experiences. Good experiences are pleasant in the moment, then the glow wears off, same old, same old. What the opportunity is, though, and we see this exemplified, I think, implicitly, and we need a lot more research about this, but it's a fair inference to draw. We see it exemplified in that roughly third of the people who get a lot out of it, that if you're having these beneficial experiences, insights in therapy, the fruits of a gratitude practice, uh, enjoying working in your garden, slow down for a breath or two or three to take in the good. Slow down to help that experience of being cared for by another person to sink into you. If you're having what we talked about in the last episode, a sacred conversation with someone, whether it's a professional or somebody else, and it's really landing inside you, slow down to help those seeds really sink in and develop roots and begin to grow and bear fruit over time. Slow down. And then you can defeat the hedonic treadmill. Um, you can help yourself then have the kind of lasting gains that you can take with you wherever you go. Great job trying to unpack one of the most <laughs> consistent critiques of, of therapy in a compressed way. So thank you for that one, Dad. No, I mean, I think that what you're saying is totally right on. And it's interesting how you see these kind of curves in history of different ideas becoming the prevailing dogma of one kind or another, and then kind of changing over time. And if you go back not too far in the history of psychology, if you go back to William James, The Principles of Psychology, there was a quote from James that became kind of the foundation of the field for a while. And it goes like this, it's well for the world that in most of us, by the age of 30, the character has set like plaster and will never soften again. So the prevailing view for most of the history of psychology, I would say, was that people basically thought that a person's characteristics were pretty much set in stone very early on, probably by 18, 
definitely by 30. And of course, some of the worst and most problematic movements in human history believed that character and personality were only genetic, and therefore humans could kind of be bred like horses. That's a whole other conversation. But that was basically the prevailing view for a very, very long time. So the idea that we actually can grow and change for the better mm. is a very, uh, sometimes it's referred to as the third wave or humanistic psychology, things mm -hmm. like that. It's actually a pretty modern idea in the field, yeah. even though you might hear that and think like, well, of course we can get better over time. And I think that the key point is what you said for a second, which is that experiences can be a little bit overrated. There's like, for instance, a lot of people who talk about the hedonic treadmill point to often as studies of winners of lotteries that show mm -hmm. that they won the lottery and they really didn't get that much happier. And there's also a lot of research which has a lot of complexity attached to it and a lot of very, very bad conclusions have been drawn from this research. So you want to be a little bit careful. That shows things like after a certain income point, people's happiness doesn't continue to increase just because they make more money. And okay, like there's, again, some nuance here, but these are things that are pointed to. But for me, I think that it gets back to exactly what you were saying, which is that, yeah, absolutely. It's very possible to be happy with relatively little and be unhappy with a lot. And it's about what effort are you bringing to these questions and are you trying to really get the most out of your experiences? And which people, like you're saying, which third are you in? Which of those categories do you want to place yourself into to the extent that it's possible to do that, of course, based on nature and underlying things like that? Do you want to really try to get the most out of your experiences? Do you really want to try to move your happiness set point or however you want to think about it? Because I think that a lot of people just kind of like shrug their shoulders and they run into this research and they kind of give up. And that's the only thing that guarantees you failure. If you look at research itself, mm -hmm. routinely what you'll see is you'll have the treatment group and the control group to simplify. Mm -hmm. And then after the treatment group has gone through its thing, you do these various statistical tests that in many ways essentially boil down to the question, is the average of the treatment group significantly, in other words, unlikely to, to be due to chance alone, significantly better than the average of the control group. Hmm. Okay, because you don't want to be deluded. You don't want to be fooled. You want to make sure that there's a significant substantial difference. Okay, but if you look really closely, if you can imagine the control group as a kind of bell curve, and then the treatment group has another kind of bell curve and the two are superimposed upon each other, even in situations in which the average of the treatment group is not much greater than the average of the control group, still in the treatment group, there will be that upper third who got a lot out of the intervention, that their gains for the upper third were offset by the non-gains or even deterioration, the losses in the bottom third, roughly, of the treatment group. Mm -hmm. The question that becomes, what's going on with that upper third, right? Mm. And then someone might say, well, it's just random. Well, maybe, or maybe the people that landed in that upper third had some individual differences, 
had other factors operating that enabled them to make really good use of this intervention in lasting and lasting ways. And one of the things that happens is that there's this trick of language. And frankly, I think it's an enormous fault in the field of social science broadly, including my own domain of psychology, that we generalize from the word. We basically say, oh, no significant benefit for XYZ intervention, done. In other words, we're generalizing from the average of the entire group or the treatment group to every single individual within that group by just by using the language, oh, no significant benefit for XYZ intervention. Well, that's completely wrong. There was a lot of benefit for the people in the upper third <laughs> of the results in the treatment group. And yeah. if we were truly scientific, <laughs> we then want to understand what's going on with that upper third? What turned yeah, them into totally. peak performers? Let's study those people. You know, it's crazy in business, in athletics, we study peak performers, right? We breed horses, let's say, because we're looking for peak performers and we want to help them have more kids, more foals, et cetera. Why don't we study the people who get the most out of these various interventions and then based on that, iterate and improve our interventions? I totally understand, by the way, if you're listening to this and some of the conversation around research got a little bit thick. Um, I actually think that you summarized it really well there, Dad. But one of the overall, like the fundamental takeaway out of some of that yeah. is that often what you see is that a benefit from something might not be generalizable across the entire population, but there are many, many, many people who get enormous benefit out of it. So great summaries. And sometimes great. that can be lost in research. So that's just what, uh, what Rick was pointing to there. What a summary. <laughs> Of my brand. Thank you, Dad. Good yeah, no, trying to trying to let's summer it, like simplify some pretty heady, complicated stuff here. But I uh, know, I mean, I thought that what you did was great. It just if you want the one sentence takeaway, that's kind of a little bit of a simplification of it. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And I love what you said earlier too, Forrest. You know, you're cribbing from my joint or something like that in <laughs> talking about neuroplasticity, that yeah. we actually have this capacity for lifelong learning. Absolutely mm -hmm. true. It gives the lie to the statement that you're messed up, you're stuck, nothing will get better, too bad. Just, you know, live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. Yeah. And I, I just, I'll spend another second here just kind of talking about that. I hear all the time that, oh, you know, once you get to a certain age, you know, people just don't change, can't teach an old dog new tricks, whatever. The actual research that's been done in this territory, speaking of research, shows that personality trait change, like the big five personality characteristics, actually changes the most between the ages of 20 and 40. That's the yeah. most rich period for personality change outside of like, you know, your first five years, that sort yeah. of stuff. And then this continues to occur throughout middle and even old age. And the largest study that I'm aware of on personality change shows that agreeableness, that one factor of personality, changed the most between the ages of 30 and 60. It actually increased over that period of time. People became more agreeable as they aged. Well, fun fact, openness tends to decrease as a person ages, which kind of makes sense if you think about it. So the point is that all of these factors are very mutable. And having this like very narrow view of personality as this thing that you just like pop out with is completely misguided and is not really backed up by any modern research that I'm aware of. That's great. What a summary. And then at the most individual level of research, we know in our own case, hopefully, that there's significant areas in which we've grown. 
over the last 10 or 20 years. Maybe we've gotten less irritable about certain things. We've gotten less preoccupied maybe with what other people say. Maybe we've cultivated a greater happiness, maybe a greater wisdom. We know those changes have happened in ourselves. Hmm. We also know people around us. Yes, there are people who just don't have a learning curve. Got it. They're in the lower third, yeah, let's totally. say, of the distribution. So be it. And maybe the reasons why that's the case and no yeah. blame, just fact. Okay. On the other hand, we know lots of people directly, probably, and we certainly have read about many, many more who've made tremendous transformations and healings over the course of their long adulthood. So right in front of our nose are many, many examples of why this kind of hedonic treadmill is hopeless point of view. It's just not true. Yeah. Great. Great summary. Do you want to move on to another one, another misconception? Forrest, I've got one for you that's related to what we've been talking about. Yeah. Now that we've established that people really can heal and grow, especially if, you know, they make some efforts and there's some skillfulness there. And frankly, there's some grace. There are circumstances are auspicious and supportive. All those coming together. Yes, growth is possible. Okay, now that we've established that, how do we grow? There's a prevailing theory that kind of goes like this. No pain, no gain. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. There's some Hemingway quote kind of like that. Like life breaks us all for some, we mend and we're stronger at the broken places, something like that. So mm -hmm. what do you think about that? What do you think about the premise that the primary path to learning is through pain, is through negative experiences? Yeah, huge view, very much a prevailing view also to an extent in like certain schools of psychology and behaviorism and things for, for some time that by through punishment, people learned the most effectively. And it is true that punishment can build a behavior. We know this. But the question is really, what are the costs of building this behavior? And is it truly the most effective way to go about building the behavior? So I'll start by just looking at children for a second, because that's a period of time where we're building a lot of behaviors. We're learning a lot about the world. We're trying to gain, and yeah, we're experiencing some pain. One of the classic ways that children for you know, hundreds of years were taught to do or not do different things was through corporal punishment. A behavior was acted on and the child was smacked. A behavior was not acted on and the child was smacked. You know, whatever it was, like that was the learning mechanism. And what's really interesting is that there have now been very, like a number of large scale studies done on the corporal punishment of children. And what they have consistently found is that parental spanking it has effects on early childhood behaviors similar to those of other adverse childhood experiences, like physical or emotional abuse or neglect, like a parent with a mental illness, parental substance abuse. Hmm. Spanking is pretty much as bad as those things in terms of the emotional and psychological development of the child. Wow. So what does this mean? Well, they, yeah, they learned the behavior but at what cost? Mm. And that's really what we're talking about when we're having this whole conversation about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. If you lose an arm, you can learn how to cope with just one arm. You absolutely can. And there are people who have gone through unbelievable traumatic experiences and have come out the other side and they've experienced what we refer to as like post-traumatic growth, which is a major topic 
inside of psychology and a, a very complicated and nuanced one. But they don't get the arm back. The arm is gone. And then it's about, okay, how do we cope with the lack of an arm? The things that happen to us have costs, even if they do help us like mold our behavior in one way or another. And what we really need to do here is we need to balance the costs with the benefits. And that's sometimes what gets lost. So it's not so much can we develop a behavior through harsh self-criticism or harsh self-punishment. It's more, well, is there a better way to do this? And that's the conversation that sometimes gets missed a little bit. So good. I think that the exploration of post-traumatic growth is really important and valuable mm. and very, very hopeful. And people who are writers and teachers and therapists in that area, and we've had some correspondence with people mm -hmm. like that, wonderful, very, very, very important things. We recently actually published an essay about this in the Wise Brain Bulletin, if people have an interest in that, that comes out every other month from the institute I founded, the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom the Wise Brain Bulletin. So you could find an article there about this recently, and you might like some other issues as well. I'll just mention that in passing. <laughs> when I look to myself, and I know other yeah. people, I think, first of all, if you are having painful, even traumatic experiences, acute or ongoing, as much as you can, of course, it would be helpful to try to rise from the ashes like the veritable phoenix. It would be helpful to try to grow as much as you can from that experience, to be sure. Second, I do think there are certain kinds of gains that are acquired only through related pains, such as knowing that you can indeed get through a time of enormous challenge, maybe a life and death struggle in the mountains, maybe dealing with someone who's really, really out to get you, could be a shocking loss, a terrible injury, the bone deep knowing of your own gritty core is not available completely. It's available conceptually, maybe, but you don't really know it till you really live through it, for example. And there are other kinds of experiences like that. So I think it really is true that there are certain kinds of gains that are only acquired through certain related kinds of pains. That's certainly true. And even if a person learns things, has gains from a certain kind of pain, a fair question is, could they have achieved those gains? Could they have learned those life lessons? Could they have opened their heart? Could they have widened their perspective? Whatever it might be. Could they have gotten those gains without so much pain? Yeah. Without the collateral damage of the horribleness of what they went through. And then two more quick points here. It's also really true that for most people, pain has no gain. Mm. It's just trauma that you survived, you got on the other side of, you came out eventually, ultimately okay. You would never wish it on anyone, but it was basically just pain. In particular, there's the everyday grinding pain of stresses, mistreatment, physical pain in the body, low-grade background illness, the kind of ache in your heart of loss of one kind or another. It's just pain. There's no learning from it. There's no development related to it. It's just suffering. And it's important to really appreciate 
that so much of the pain that we experience doesn't really have any gain that somehow justifies it or offsets it and enables us to then kind of countenance it. Next to last point, it's also true that the gains, which have to do psychologically with the acquisition of various capabilities, positive moods, self-awarenesses, skills of different kinds, psychological resources broadly, those results, the development of those internal resources is acquired through having experiences of those resources that are internalized. Mm. We develop greater trait gratitude by having experiences of gratitude that are internalized. Most of the experiences of the psychological muscles that we are growing and want to be growing in ourselves are rewarding experiences. They feel mm. meaningful. Mm -hmm. They feel enjoyable. In other words, they're not predominantly painful experiences, even if there's some painfulness mixed into it. In other words, the primary path to growing is through having enjoyable experiences, rewarding, meaningful experiences of those psychological resources that we want to grow. It's also true that what enables us to have post-traumatic growth, if we're to have that, is by tapping into and drawing upon resources of various kinds inside ourselves that were acquired through mainly enjoyable experiences. And the drawing upon of those resources inside ourselves is a meaningful, enjoyable experience, usually, rather than a painful one. Then the last thing I'll just say is to ask ourselves, to what use are these ideologies put about the nature of people and the nature of growth, and even the vision of what's possible to be experienced commonly, regularly, by the great majority of the population, even in this real human life. You know, what are the mm. uses to which these ideologies are put? And if there's a view that basically says that the way we primarily help people is by enabling them or putting up with them having painful, miserable experiences, that's going to kind of justify economic systems and cultural systems and political systems that are just fine and just shrug at the face of, you know, misery, widespread misery. Individually, ideologies that basically say, you know, it really doesn't matter if people are suffering around you. In fact, you know, it's a growth opportunity for them. Well, Huh, then it makes it a lot easier to put your boot on someone else's neck. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a huge part of it. And my personal view is that for so many of these misconceptions, or just in general, when you see somebody out there in the world making a very strong statement, a very certain statement, that personal growth or self-help or psychology or whatever is like a certain kind of way, and it's only that way it's appropriate to be a bit suspicious. And particularly, I think it's really important to do a little bit of digging into the broader kind of cultural narrative that that viewpoint is pushing. Yeah. Because often you see exactly what you're talking about, Dad, where arguments like that start to become used for really, really problematic ends. And you know, it's good to be aware of the arguments that we are even just tacitly endorsing by taking on a certain kind of maybe slightly problematic viewpoint. I think that uh, puts a good bow on that one, on that misconception. I want to ask you a couple about meditation if you're open to it. All right. Okay. 
Yeah. So I want to, uh, I'll pose these this way. It's, it's kind of two, kind of one. Okay. The first one is meditation is what happens when you sit quietly on a cushion and you don't think about anything. Second one, I have a hard time controlling my attention, so I can't meditate. Or I have a hard time sitting still, so I can't meditate. What do you think about that? I love these. So first, some meditations really aim at deep stillness and concentration and a profoundly quiet mind, a little bit like the surface of a mountain pond that's perfectly still. That's true. And it's also true that sometimes people can have experiences of that, even if in their meditation, they're not directly aiming at it. And there are many, many, many other ways to meditate, which generally include the recognition that you can remain stably present in the present while many experiences pass through awareness, including many thoughts, many feelings, sounds, sights, and all the rest of it. So if we're sitting there trying to make our mind stop thinking, that's usually very frustrating. There are meditative paths and processes. I routinely teach them and engage them myself that can help the mind become less agitated, can become less noisy, less verbal. We start settling more and more into a feeling of our bodies. We become more and more aware of things as a whole, both of which, for example, tend to reduce internal verbal chatter. We become more and more rested in an observing, a being with, a witnessing of, the streaming of consciousness, rather than being swept along by any particular old boot or other flotsam and jetsam swirling along in that stream. And because we're not swept along, we can develop a growing understanding of our own reactive patterns. We can start to recognize increasingly some of the familiar boots and rusty soup cans floating on down the river yet again and where they come from. And what enables us to have that kind of recognition is that we're resting increasingly stably in a sense of sustained presence and ongoing witnessing. Mm. Now, I should add before we go much further, I've kind of described mm -hmm. a certain kind of a meditation. There are many, many, many other kinds of meditations. And I have, of course, given my organizing nature, kind of a typology of meditation that I could kind of lay on you. First category of meditation, I'll just call it chilling out. Okay. You're setting aside a little time and you're just chilling. You're disengaging from the stressful run. You're kind of helping yourself reflect a bit about and then increasingly disengage from the argument you're having in your mind with your partner. You're not doing some kind of formal practice, but deep down inside yourself, you're not stressing. You're not adding to your stresses. You're disengaging from your stresses and you're kind of coming home to a feeling of being more centered. Maybe you do it for a minute, Maybe you do it for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It's a kind of chilling out meditation. Mm -hmm. All right. So have you ever done a kind of chilling out meditation? 
Yes. Yeah. No, okay. I've done a lot of chilling out meditation. <laughs> wow. I'm impressed. Okay. That's good. Okay. Great. A second kind of meditation is one in which you're deliberately witnessing in a kind of open, observing way. You're being mindful of, you're sustaining mindfulness of your stream of consciousness. So you're letting your experiences flow. You're not trying to nudge them one way or another. You're simply being present with them. And you might be, you know, making a little bit of effort that helps you stay stably present, like I said, kind of on the banks of the stream of consciousness without being swept along in it. You ever do that kind of meditation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Sometimes called open awareness, kind of a classic mindfulness practice. To be clear, even for experienced meditators who are relatively stable in their ongoing quality of presence, it's really quite normal to be swept along from time to time. Okay, that's the second type, open awareness, witnessing. Third type of meditation, broadly, is one in which you're deliberately cultivating certain qualities. You are deliberately leaning toward or leaning into certain experiences, and then often just tacitly, although I think it's quite helpful to be doing it a little more deliberately, to engage processes of positive neuroplasticity, you're helping these experiences that you're cultivating start to lodge inside you in some ways, establish themselves inside you as lasting changes of neural structure and function, such as mm -hmm. cultivating greater attentional control, being able to regulate your own attention, or cultivating greater compassion. Whatever it is you might be cultivating, it's a cultivation practice. Ever do that? Ever deliberately? Yeah, yeah, no, done that one, particularly a little bit more back in the day. These uh -huh. days, I feel like that process kind of is more of a an active psychological one rather than a meditative one. But um, yeah. I certainly remember, you know, a lot of what I did at Abaya Gary was kind of focused on that. Oh, okay, Gary, good. When. Yeah, 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 very good. Yeah, a kind of a classic form of it is for people to do some kind of loving kindness or compassion practice yeah. where you're deliberately taking as your object of meditation not so much something kind of neutral like the sensations of breathing, but rather something like a little saying in your in your mind, you know, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you live with ease, mm -hmm. or something like that. Okay, good. So that's kind of roughly the fourth, the third kind rather. And I want to name that in that cultivation practice, sometimes what we're cultivating is a quality of deep stillness. Mm we can cultivate in the Theravadan branch of Buddhism, the kind of Southeast Asian branch, what are called the jhana factors. These are five psychological factors, mental factors that promote deep, non-ordinary experiences and states of absorption, peak experiences, things like that. These would be, for me, in this third category, mm. all right? Mm -hmm. I've done a lot less of that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, I think that if you if you kind of run through the jhana states, which are, again, these like very deep meditative states, I've gotten glimpses of some of them, uh -huh. particularly alongside some other stuff. And on my own, kind of like wandered toward yeah. the first-ish one, wandered toward maybe the second-ish one at most. And that's about as far as I've gone with any of it. Okay, good. Yeah. And then if I could just take it a little bit further in this third category, roughly, it's a cultivation practice. Now we're drawing on 
other skills we've acquired along the way, but we're still cultivating. Another thing we can cultivate is a sense of being increasingly immersed in, rested in, something that we want to abide as or become increasingly one with or have deepening sense of being in touch with, such as an underlying feeling of peacefulness in the present. We're kind of helping ourselves do that. For some people, this starts to can become increasingly religious, a sense of abiding in union with something we're cultivating. Okay? Last category, fourth category. It's the cultivation of insight. You know, it's mm. a particular kind of cultivation. We're developing insight both into the kind of gross forces inside our mind. You know, what makes us angry? What makes us scared? What makes us sad? How do we pour fuel on that fire? How do we add insult to injury inside our own minds? So forth. And then further to develop insight in this fourth category into the nature of experiences into the recognition that all experiences, whether it's a sound or a pain in your foot or some kind of planning or even the sense of yourself, all experiences have the same nature as made of parts that are connected and changing and thus mm. empty of absolute essence or identity. They exist like clouds rather than bricks in mm. our own minds. So those are the four categories. And I think mm -hmm. those are different. I think for me, at least, that's a useful way to think about different kinds of meditation. Yeah, and I think that all of that is a great exploration of how meditation isn't just kind of sitting there with an empty mind and how it can take all of these many different forms. And kind of layered on top of that, a, a point that I really want to make here is that meditation is a act. What I mean by that is that it's a thing a person does. And they don't have to just do it when they're sitting down. You can meditate while you wash the dishes. You can meditate while you walk through a park. You can meditate while you talk to a friend. Some of these activities are more demanding of our consciousness than others, so they might be more challenging to do while meditating. But you can bring a meditative tone to a lot of different kinds of things. And if you read anything written by some of the people who've gone way out to the deep end of the meditative pool, what most of them will say is at some point they will say something like, well, part of my practice became never not meditating, essentially, like trying to make everything meditative in nature, even if they weren't explicitly meditating which is just an indication of like how much flexibility there is to the practice of awareness, the practice of attention, the practice of realizing the nature of reality, which is, as you were saying, Dad, that all things are compounded, that things arise and fall away, and that the tighter we try to hold on to them, the more they slip through our fingers. And if you can cultivate that, you are in a sense meditating, however you want to do it, whatever form or function that takes for you. I'm really glad you said that. And thanks for putting up with my four-part typology, which of course fascinates <laughs> me because I'm in the field. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really am there. You're totally right. I, I think of meditation, frankly, and, and being genuinely meditative and using that word in a in a way that really honors the deliberateness and the liberation potential, mm. the freedom. In other words, liberation, freedom the freedom that's available to us in this practice and in this journey. And 
One of them is the sense of coming home. You feel like you're coming home. That's, to me, what meditation a lot is. Suzuki Roshi, this wonderful Zen master, was asked, and I think he made a comment once, he said, enlightenment is the feeling of coming home. You know that feeling, you come home from your journey, you lay down your cares, you drop your bags, you plop, it's familiar, poof, you're at rest. No problem, poof. So we come home to ourselves. That's what we do when we meditate. Related to this is the moral dimension. You can't meditate if your hands are unclean morally. If there's blood on your hands, it's hard to be quiet mm. in your innermost being. Mm. And blood on your hands can come in many different kinds of ways, not literally. And meditation naturally tends to draw us into weighing less heavily on other people, walking more softly with other people. We naturally tend to do that. There's a natural movement. We can encourage it through cultivations in which as we become more aware of our own tender, tender heart, we become more aware of the tender hearts of other people as well. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that was really lovely. So if I could for us, I wanna kind of build on this bit about the relational nature of meditation okay, yeah. to address and maybe even critique a pretty widespread view that is rooted in notions of rugged individualism that says something like, well, if other people need therapy or other people want to do some kind of formal practice like meditation, whatever, but really I can do it all on my own. If I mm. have to rely on some kind of regular practice or I have to rely on some other person like a therapist, there's something wrong with me. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting. Actually, we've almost come full circle going back to the beginning of the previous podcast episode in which the critique of, let's say, psychotherapy or broadly forms of self-help is that they're too self-absorbed. They're too caught yeah. up in me, 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 I'm going to do me. So here we've almost come full circle. We have another critique of self-help and psychotherapy that's saturated with me, 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 I can do it all on my own. What do you say yeah. to this? Well, again, I think that this is one of those that's that's complicated, and and sometimes people come to it from positive desires. There's this whole movement on social media and and through a lot of prominent people that focuses on essentially self healing. Basically, the idea that you know no one else is going to fix you; you got to fix yourself. And some of this comes from really good places, like for instance. Therapy is not the cheapest thing on the planet. And sometimes people don't have the resources available to yeah. them to seek help from other people. And that's a very real thing. And I want to really treat that appropriately. At the same time, I do think that a lot of that viewpoint comes from what you were saying, which is the sense of like rugged individualism. I'm the only one who can ever know myself. And therefore, I am the only one who can ever fix my problems. And indeed, if I come to rely on anyone else for anything, well, that cheapens it in some way. And to me, that is such a weird viewpoint for so many different reasons. For starters, I feel like a lot of people play life on a harder difficulty setting than they need to. Mm. And you can attribute this to a lot of different arenas. And frankly, life is hard enough as it is. Ask for help. 
Like, mm. please ask for help. <laughs> you know, like, do, do not play life on a harder <laughs> difficulty setting than you absolutely need to. And yes, there are absolutely situations where help is not available. And yeah. then it's all about, okay, what can I do on my own? Yeah. And that's super real. And I, I want to give, again, a lot of credit to that. But when possible, ask for help. Also, just fundamentally, it is so useful to have a third eye to your material. Mm -hmm. We often cannot see our own defenses. We can't see our own subconscious. We can't see our own tendencies. We can't see all the time our dreaded experience. We can't see our exiled parts, to use the language from internal family systems. A lot of the time we can't see that. Mm. And it takes somebody else. And it doesn't have to be a therapist. It can be a friend. It can be a loved one. It can be a, a religious guide. It could be, it could be a lot of different things. It can be a dog sometimes, you know, whatever. Non, non-human animal. To see the parts of ourselves that we have hidden from our own awareness. And I think that we're just kidding ourselves if we think that we can have perfect awareness of all of our parts all of the time. And mm. often the healing happens in the exploration of the hidden parts. Mm. That's a fantastic summary. I think to myself of taking many, many people rock climbing, including rappelling, in which you basically put your weight on a, on a rope and you back out over the edge of a cliff, sometimes dangling on this rope that's less than a centimeter thick sometimes, you know, for 100 feet. And it's been very interesting to watch people who come to that who are really tough maybe, and who are just absolutely blown away by the fear that comes up for them about doing that. And I think, too, that for many people who say, oh, I'm so strong, I can do it all myself, the truth is they're scared about really putting their cards on the table, really talking about what goes on inside their own minds especially in the kind of darker, shadowy crevices of their own minds. It's really scary mm -hmm. for them. So in mm -hmm. fact, what's really strong and gutsy and even heroic is to be willing to talk about what's really going on with you and have a sacred conversation, have a useful conversation with someone who can help you with it. The other thing about it is that one of the things that is a kind of growing theme in conversations about American as a society these days, is the ways in which we have somehow in many quarters turned away from the very notion of expertise, particularly mm -hmm. with regard to science and public health. And I think that it's important to appreciate that there are people out there who know more than you do about something. They're more skillful at it. They've been trained. They've been doing it for a long time they're better at it than you are. Why not learn from those people? So if you are interested in, for example, turning your garage into a bonus room, I just made that up, or if you, you know, <laughs> wanted to make pasta better and not have it get burnt all the time or something, you would go to somebody who knew something about it. You would go mm -hmm. to it in a book or watch it on TV or maybe even sort of talk to somebody about it. Well, in much the same way, if you're interested in some kind of improvement in terms of your thoughts and feelings and how you manage your reactions and just the interior climate inside your own being, the weather there regularly, what's it like to be you? You would naturally 
prudently want to go talk to somebody who knew more about it than you did, who could teach you some things about it or guide you along the way. It's a very simple principle, and it applies to me to the general domain of our innermost being, our mental health, our psyches, much like it would apply to fixing our refrigerator. Great point. And I think it's such a good analogy because it takes our emotional tone out of it. It is a lot easier for somebody to admit that they need assistance with a basic task than it is for somebody to admit that they could use a little assistance with their psychology. Because that is such a intimate and vulnerable place to be. And it's true. Nobody knows you as well as you know yourself. I, I think that that's just true. People know their own map, their own interior, better than any therapist, any psychologist is ever going to know it. But that doesn't mean that they can't get insight from somebody else, particularly about structures that they're not aware of Mm -hmm. inside of their own consciousness, their own personality, and so on. And I think that that's what you're really highlighting here, Dad, like the impact that expertise can have and our ability to know ourselves even better, Mm -hmm. which is such a valuable thing because it's where that learning, where that growth truly comes from. Yeah. And maybe you want to give it trial and error for a little while. So your refrigerator's got some trouble. We actually had a problem with our refrigerator. Yeah, I started making all kinds of water on the floor. What's going on? We kind of fiddled around with it. And then it really became clear after a few hours of that, that, whoa, the level of the problem here is greater than I can deal with and we need some expertise. So, you know, maybe you can fiddle around inside yourself, trial and error and so forth. And yet it may come to a point, it's not so much even that you need the help. It's not so much that you need to, let's say, go talk to a counselor or something like that, or need to open a self-help book and invest the 10 hours into reading it. It's just that it would save you a lot of time and trouble in your own journey through life. It's just more efficient to go to people who are experts about that, get their help, and then keep on going on your own. Great. Yeah. Wonderful point. I want to give you one more misconception. This is a small one. We'll do it pretty quickly. Okay. But I have heard it all the time. And I think that particularly for a podcast like ours, which has an audience that's really interested in this stuff and probably is going to be having more conversations with friends, family members, things like that related to these topics than the average person is because their friends might know that they're kind of into mental health and personal growth or whatever it might be. I really want to raise this one because I I just think it's such an important one. Okay, so here it is. Here's the misconception. Some version of either all therapy is talk therapy or therapy is really cognitive. It's really top down. It's really about like thinking your way through a problem or Maybe even in the extreme, you know, I feel like therapy is just when you sit on some couch and you talk to this old white guy who has glasses and they ask you about your mom and it's just like a little weird and uncomfortable. Well, don't forget the goatee and the pipe. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, Okay, good. First, there are therapists and therapies that are like that. For example, Mm -hmm. one of the most evidence-based therapies is cognitive therapy or different forms of sometimes called cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a place for that. I recently did a workshop on change your mind that really drew on a lot of cognitive methods. You know, there's a place for that. That said, to quote, I think Frieda Fromm-Reichmann of Psychoanalyst in the previous century, 
she said, as a gentle rebuke to the predominantly male psychiatric establishment that was in charge of psychoanalysis, she said, the client does not need a new idea. The client needs a new experience. Mm. A new experience. And at the end of the day, we generally do not suffer what we think. We suffer what we feel. Mm. Now, often what we think makes us feel certain things. We also suffer our desires and our actions, including mm. holding back from taking important actions. Those two are shaped by what we think, but ultimately what really matters, where it really lands, is in the domain of emotion and sensation and action. That's what really predominates in our inner world. Even right now, as, as we think various things, there is an ongoing process of association of emotion and sensation and longing related to those thoughts. And with mindfulness, you can be aware of it. It's like, yes, we hear the lyrics in the song and we're focusing on the lyrics. Meanwhile, there's the melody line, there's the bass, there's the percussion, and there are the backup singers. All that's going on. And all that is, is really what really matters for, for many, many people. So we got to mm -hmm. get at that. And most therapies do get at that eventually. Maybe they do get at it through the word and through the idea. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's usually about emotion, sensation, and action very, very much. Mm -hmm. Also, as you all know, because you live with her, uh, <laughs> there are therapies that are much more somatically oriented or yeah. expressive, like dance therapies, art therapies, or therapeutic workshops of different kinds, or therapeutic personal growth experiences of different kinds that really get at more of who we are. So yeah, mm. my own experience is that therapy kind of starts with people talking. It's called the talking cure, historically, for that reason. And very quickly, if it's to have any real traction, it starts to feel palpable, like the air starts to thicken between these two beings who are really getting at something that matters. Before we get at what matters, sure, there might be a fair amount of hot air, uh, hopefully not from the therapist, sometimes, frankly, from the client, because you kind of have to clear it away. You got to do that. But you're starting to get at what matters. It feels thick between you. And when the client themselves is getting at what matters, it starts moving, becoming much deeper than mm. the words. Yeah. Yeah, no, beautifully said. Great encapsulation of the whole thing. I'm glad that we got that in at the end here because I do think that it is one of the biggest misconceptions about therapy, that it is just this purely cognitive thing, the old images of lying on the couch with psychoanalysis, you know. And as you were saying, these days people are doing so much interesting stuff that is, to use a word, therapeutic. Yeah, You know, it comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes and forms. And if there is something that you want to do, something that you feel drawn toward, as you were saying, Dad, whether it's movement or processes that happen in the body or art or different ways of interacting with the psyche, there's probably a therapy for that, or at least one that kind of leads into that territory. So if it's something that you feel drawn toward, but you've always been concerned about the kind of cognitive element of it, I, I can really, you know, avail you of some of that fear here. 
Yeah, I was just thinking there that if, for example, a person can, one, talk about things openly that really matter to you Mm. while experiencing what you're expressing, Mm. you're not just reporting, but you're actually feeling it while you say it, one. Second, with another person who is listening deeply with sustained interest and open heart and no agenda other than being present and helpful with you. Mm. While third, that person is from time to time at least offering some additional value beyond deep, receptive listening, such as a suggestion or some wisdom or a practical tool or a different way to think about things or pointing you to additional resources, some value added. If you can talk about things that really matter in this kind of way with another person who's really listening deeply in the way I'm describing while occasionally adding value above and beyond that, great. (laughs) great that's therapeutic yeah no that's the whole game totally and i've got that going in my life in different places including sometimes with you oh thanks dad i mean i find these conversations often pretty therapeutic so yeah okay good and if you're not easily able to have that with the people in your life for all kinds of often Mm. good reasons Mm -hmm. and You know, if it feels right to you to look for a way to have that in a more structured and protected and often legally regulated kind of setting, okay, then go find yourself someone to talk with. Great. Lovely. And I think that that's a wonderful place to leave today's episode. And I just think that I was so happy to do this with you, Dad. I thought this was a really great one. It was personally useful. I loved so many of the things that you said. Oh, good. So today we had the second of our two episodes dedicated to some common misconceptions that people have about therapy, meditation, personal growth, and our development in this life altogether. We started this episode by focusing on hedonic adaptation. The statement I gave was, people can't really change very much in adulthood. And Rick really explored how, actually, people can change very much in adulthood. And that maybe even more importantly than that, this whole territory focused on hedonic adaptation can really lead people to have a very doom and gloom approach to their personal development. Well, if I win the lottery and I have all these good experiences and I'll try really hard, are you just telling me that I'm not actually going to change very much? That at the end of the day, it's really not going to matter. And that was what people thought for a very long time, but these days we know that the brain changes a lot in adulthood, and that personality is really not a fixed characteristic. There are even some studies that show that personality development really takes off around the age of 20, and that that expansion lasts at least into middle age. But if we're looking for the kernel of truth here, it's that our circumstances and our experiences sometimes don't have the staying power that we might think that they do, particularly if these experiences are positive, because as we know from the huge literature on trauma and adverse childhood experiences and all of that good stuff, negative experiences have a ton of staying power in our lives. The brain really holds on to those. 
So this just makes it all the more important that we focus on the positive experiences that we are authentically having and do our best to cultivate them and allow them to have a lasting impact on our lives. Then we talked about pain and behavior change. The misconception was something along the lines of no pain, no gain, or perhaps even something like behavior is best formed through punishment. For that one, I really unpacked some of the research on the, frankly, abuse of children, corporal punishment of different kinds, and the long-term consequences that that punishment can have. Yes, often, painful experiences do lead to people changing their behavior. The question really isn't whether or not punishment is effective. It's what are the costs of that punishment, even if it is effective? And the truth is that much of the time, pain is just pain. It's just trauma without any tangible benefit attached to it. And absolutely, people can and should look for the ways in which they can make sense of their own personal history, and they can integrate their traumatic experiences into a broader, more thorough understanding of their self. That can be really, really useful, really valuable work. Then we moved on to talking about meditation, and I gave a misconception to Rick that was something along the lines of, well, meditation is just kind of sitting still on a cushion and not thinking about anything. And he responded in classic Rick fashion with a kind of four-point plan, the different kinds of meditation. And the upshot of most of that was that, honestly, meditation can take so many different forms and has so many different functions. The truth is that if you haven't tried meditating because you can't sit still, well, that's great. You can do a walking meditation. If you haven't tried meditating because you really like thinking deeply about things and you're, you're just kind of concerned about the idea of clearing your mind of all thought, well, that's okay. There's a meditation for that. You could do maybe more insight forms of meditation. Whatever it is that you're looking for, you can probably find a meditation that would suit you and would suit your deep nature. From there, we talked about rugged individualism. The misconception is the idea that I have to do everything on my own, if I don't kind of earn my own growth and development and healing all by myself, it gets discounted somehow. And maybe alongside that, the misconception that some people have that they can just do it by themselves, that they can just fully heal themselves without the aid of anyone else. And for some people, hey, maybe they can. Maybe they are the outlier on the spectrum where that really does work for them. But most of us could benefit from a little bit of help. We approach this misconception in a couple of different ways. I really emphasized in my response the ways in which we can and can't see our own behavior and see our own subconscious clearly. There's a lot of stuff for most people, myself included, that simply lies a little bit outside of our awareness. I can't see my defensive structures sometimes as well as my partner can, and it can be really helpful to get her third eye on the problem. Finally, we closed by talking about therapy, and I gave the misconception to Rick, well, isn't therapy just kind of cognitive talk therapy where you lay on a couch and there's some old white dude with glasses who takes notes and says, ah, every once in a while and asks you sort of uncomfortable questions? And he responded by saying that, sure, there are cognitive elements to therapy and there are big families of therapy that really focus on the cognitive side of things. But for most people, the benefit from therapy comes when therapy is felt. Felt in the experience, felt in the action, felt in the body. And it really starts to leave that entirely cognitive viewpoint and become something else altogether. 
Alongside that, if you don't want to sit down, if you don't want to have talk therapy, a lot of different options for people these days. There's art therapy, dance, music, interacting with non-human animals, the whole thing. It's all available to people, which is really a very good, very cool thing. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. If you'd like to support us in other ways, we have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And if you subscribe and support the show, you will receive a whole bunch of benefits ranging from full episode transcripts to expanded notes to ad-free versions of our episodes. Finally, if you'd really like to help us out, tell a friend about it. It's the best way that we have to reach new people. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.